0: Welcome to the Farmers Weekly podcast. This episode recorded on Friday, the 7th of April, 2023. From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Andrew Meredith. And I'm Hugh Broom. This week, have you changed your farm business because of energy costs? 44% say they will cut output in the next 12 months.
1: Biodiversity net gain. Did you realize that farm building projects are going to need it? With all the latest commodity prices, And we find out just how big a hit Red Tractor is with consumers.
2: The Farmers Weekly Podcast.
0: But first, after Farmers Weekly's huge story last week when we broke the news that there had been long-running and widespread food safety and food fraud violations at a UK meat processor, Farmers Weekly is launching a new campaign called Meat – our expectations to bring the industry together to drive up standards and try and ensure that these sort of violations can never happen again. The first step will be to discuss with industry in more detail about what needs to be done before we try and implement this. So earlier, I spoke to Professor Chris Elliott, a leading food crime expert from Queen's University, Belfast, who also led the UK government's independent review of food systems following the 2013 horse meat scandal. And I started by asking him, did you see this scandal coming?
2: Unfortunately, I did, and I've been predicting it for a reasonably you know, l- long period of time. Uh, and the fact is that there, there has been so many different pressures, strains, on the, the meat supply system in the UK, something like this was was, was going to manifest itself. And uh, unfortunately, it's no surprise that it's happened. Uh, and it will not be a surprise if more events don't will happen like this in the future, unless real measures are taken to, 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 to try to stamp out, you know, criminality that that exists right across the food system. Well, on behalf of farmers here at Farmers Weekly, obviously, we're really concerned about any
0: risks, the reputational damage of the food sector. So you will have seen our four uh, recommendations so far to try and prevent these from happening. Would you like to comment on whether you think the industry will find those sort of recommendations amenable?
2: I think the first one in terms of reportability really important and I think the idea of having the whistleblower line is important, you know, because there is one. I mean the National Food Crime Unit in in, in uh, England, Wales, Northern Ireland has a whistleblowing line, FSS in Scotland has a whistleblowing line, but it's about getting access to that, getting the knowledge of it. So displaying that clearly in factories and then and more than one language is really important. So that, that's one that I would really endorse. And I think it could be an, a, a very important and initial first step. Then in terms of the, the kind of insurance that when, when somebody says it's British meat, it is British meat. I think here, I have to say that when we've really investigated criminality in meat, it's there's much more than just country of origin. In fact, we've identified 24 different types of food crimes and meat. So I think we've got to be careful not just because the, the, the current issue is about is about country of origin. We've got to really think about all of those different types of, of criminality and, and come up with with, with solutions for it. Ma- mass balance has been suggested. Mass balance is important, but you know what? There's lots of ways people can cheat on mass balances as well. So just need to be careful not to pin everything on one single measure. There's quite a range of measures, I think, in terms of what I would call Data collection. You collect a lot of information and what you can do is you can convert that information into intelligence. And then from that intelligence, you get some of it, which is what I call actionable. So I think a bit bigger thinking around some of those ways of collecting information. The third is really around auditing. And you're one of the big recommendations of the Elliot Review going back 10 years. Was about unannounced audits, and really, this is about the the fifteen minute gap that 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 is, uh, is 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 allowed and permitted. So again, I think auditing is something that really needs to be looked at. I still think there's way too many audits. Most of them are not fit for purpose. That they cost a lot of money, and ultimately, who pays for that? It's the consumer. So I think a big rethink in auditing is needed. So cutting the 15-minute gap, yes, but I think there's other measures that really need to be put in place in terms of auditing. It's around training. You know, how many people really know to go into a factory and, 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 and uncover criminal activity? Because what we've been picking up is it, 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 there's been a lot of fraud in terms of documentation fraud and so forth. So I think really it's, it's about getting, getting groups of people, small groups of people, and you can call them the fraud squad. You know, they, they can be on premises quickly and they will know what to look for. And, and they will see through, you know, the, the, the ways that people try to cover up this criminal behaviour. The fourth recommendation was around uh, electronic and making digital records to replace paper records. And yes, absolutely right. But again, from my experience, people can cheat with paper records. You can you can cheat on an Excel sheet or you can actually cheat in d- digital systems as well. So what is really required is when you go electronic is ways of verifying that the data put into the electronic systems is accurate, reliable, and, and, and trustworthy. And, and the only way I, I see that that happening is through really good sampling and testing programs, random sampling and testing programs. It happens for many, many other things Right, right across the UK, right across Europe, around the use of veterinary drugs, around pesticides, many, many things. I think we need to put in place a scheme where testing is mandatory. Data goes on to electronic systems, and th- there will be red flags very, very quickly if there if there are issues. So, I, th- I think that's my take on 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 uh, those four recommendations. I think it's a great starting base. And I think now the next phase is let's get those stakeholders round a couple of you know real tables or, or virtual tables to talk through what can be what can be agreed by the industry and how it can be implemented. There there are a lot of opportunities. You know, for, from, from scandals can come opportunities and here is one really to bring the meat industry right in smack into the middle of the twenty first century. That's Professor Chris Elliott.
1: So, Andrew, this story has obviously been having some big impact. I mean, it's a massive story for Farmers Weekly. It's a massive story further afield, isn't it? Absolutely, Hugh.
0: And look, as Farmers Weekly editor, it would be, you know, uh, wrong of me to say we haven't on some level enjoyed the last week. It's been great to see our name mentioned on the BBC News, in all the broadsheet newspapers. But at the heart of this, obviously, the reason for it is very, very serious. And we recognise that farmers are very, very vulnerable to food scandals. Uh, They can see a market disappear overnight if the wrong sort of story hits the front pages. So we were, you know, on one level, we were quite worried when we broke this story about what the impact would be. But we thought not telling it and allowing this sort of thing to continue to happen would be worse. It would be worse to do nothing at all.
1: Yeah, understanding. But I think the thing is here, isn't it? Everyone on farm, well, let's say most people on farm, the vast majority of people on farm are busting a gut to get it right, to hit their assurance targets, to do everything by the book, you know, the amount of red tape and everything else. We talk about it week in, week out. And then you get this scenario where the people in the middle are effectively taking the Michael totally and just completely uh, running all that through the mill. What do you think's got to happen so this doesn't happen again? I think
0: it will come down to to the companies that are involved in the food chain between the farm gate and the kitchen plate concluding that the price of doing nothing, the risk to their reputation is greater than you know cleaning up their act and making sure that the the audit trail prevents these sort of actions happening in future. So we want to help those companies. We want to champion the ones that want to do the right thing. We want to celebrate them. And that's why this week we're launching a proper campaign, a conversation about this with the industry. You know, we've got some recommendations that we published in that first piece, some things that we think need to happen, but we know we don't have all the answers but we can bring together the people that do and let's have a grown-up conversation about how we can take pride in the whole of the food chain.
1: Farmers Weekly is obviously an industry-facing publication and it's you know within the industry but how do you think this has gone down in the sort of wider population with consumers for example is there any way of gauging this the impact the stories
0: had? So some of my non-farming friends my London friends it was the first time in my career at Farmers Weekly they had spotted our name in the national media and they came and told me about it rather than me boring them about my day job and there's two aspects of this story of course there's food fraud which farmers are more concerned about because they're losing part of their market there but food safety is of paramount importance to all of us but particularly from that consumer perspective so you know my friends and I'm sure many people around the country when uh, this story broke would have been very very concerned that there is a risk to eating meat in ready meals in sandwiches in those lovely packets of sliced ham on the shelf and we need to make sure they have the confidence that when you know a firm says that they've tested it for listeria they bloody have
3: when it comes to building a new shed Aturnit has got you covered for over a century Aturnit's team of experts have worked side by side with farmers to build sheds with a roof they can rely on and help farms perform better our fibre cement sheets dampen noise, making sheds up to two times quieter than metal alternatives. They reduce condensation, absorbing up to 25% of their weight in moisture. And their high performance thermal properties make sure sheds stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Specifically designed for British farmers and our unique weather, alternate profiled sheets create better sheds for healthier livestock, where crops are protected and machinery secured. No wonder they've been outstanding in their field since 1905. A Turnit profiled Cheating. We've got you covered. Visit a today to order your free sample and find out more.
4: The Farmers Weekly Podcast.
1: The soaring price of energy risks a cut in farm output. That's according to a recent survey of farmers by Farmers Weekly. Earlier, I spoke to news editor Phil Clark, who's been compiling the results of the study.
5: Yeah, we had a a pretty good response. It was uh, getting on for 400 uh, completed entries, so uh, enough to do a proper analysis from. And I guess the main two findings were, first of all, the extent of the cost of energy increases that uh, farmers had suffered in the last 12 months. Uh, No big surprise there, but uh, the average, I think, had gone up about 80%. And three quarters of the farmers that responded had had increases in energy bills of 40% or more, a number with increases of over 200%. So, you know, some fairly eye-watering increases uh, across the board.
1: And was there any correlation in terms of sector?
5: I mean, not surprisingly, the uh, poultry sector stood out uh, with much uh, higher increase. So uh, something like, um, well, over 100% um, average price increase in the poultry sector. And a quarter of them said that uh, they'd seen their bills go up by over 200%. Uh, so poultry, clearly. Uh, vegetables as well. I think on fruit, we didn't have a separate category for glass house, which obviously is one that's particularly vulnerable. Uh, but uh, fruit growers, uh, again, reported particularly high increases. Uh, but equally, you know, it was it's kind of across the board, all sectors. Suffering to some or a great extent. Judging by your respondents, to what
1: extent is the cost of energy changing what they're doing with their businesses?
5: Quite striking, really, that um, about a third of people said that they had cut production already in the last 12 months. Uh, And that's, you know, during a, a year last year when clearly input prices were up, but commodity prices were also relatively buoyant for many. Um, But I think as we go into 2023, we're seeing commodity prices coming down, but input prices stubbornly high. And, uh, you know, that's now looking more like 44% saying that they were potentially going to cut production this year as well. So, you know, the empty shelves that we've seen in supermarkets Uh, is definitely something we might expect to continue with that kind of reaction.
1: On one hand, these businesses in some cases are cutting back on their production to afford the energy and effectively to balance the books. Presumably, some businesses, though, have changed what they're doing to use less energy.
5: We certainly saw um, about a third of the respondents saying that they cut red diesel consumption per se, which uh, again was kind of across the board because everybody uses it. Uh, but then we also found people that were changing the way that they were farming a bit, uh, so either changing rotations. Uh, some said they dropped potatoes from from their farming activity. Uh, yeah, anything to reduce the number of times they have to uh, drive over over a crop. But apart from that. Then, yeah, there were people that were investing in energy-saving equipment, um, improving insulation of buildings. We also had some say that they'd uh, tried to buy more red diesel in advance, but that kind of backfired, I think, because uh, the price has now come down, and uh, they may find that had they waited a bit longer, uh, it might have served them better. Others, you know, engaging in farm energy audits, um, making more use of farm generators, so, you know, a whole range of things that people are doing to just try and you know, control that uh, that fuel bill.
1: That's Farmers Weekly News editor, Phil Clark. So, Andrew, this um, survey that's, uh, that readers have taken part in, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty big. 44% saying that effectively, you know, as a result of energy prices, their production is going down.
0: That's right here. And a third already have. And, you know, We cannot fault any farmer that has taken that course of action. Their number one objective is to look after their business. But what a state of affairs we are in where farmers can't produce food um, without losing money. And a lot of consumers are waking up to the fact that they're increasingly unable to afford it either.
1: The system feels kind of broken at the moment. So going forward, though, we're going to need to see some, you know, for some of those high intensity energy using sectors like poultry, we're going to need some either some massive costs or price hikes on output which we've sort of had but haven't in some cases thinking about eggs or we're just going to see this going down or our energy prices is going to it doesn't look like energy prices are going to start leveling off anytime soon they've gone back a bit but they're certainly not going back to where they were
0: no and the final option the one bit you've missed there is of course government support and you know government defra in particular is steadfastly Said their role it really, unless it's an extreme emergency, is not to intervene in the food markets. But we know that Grant Chaps' newly formed department for energy security and net zero does administer the energy and trade intensive industry scheme, uh, which is subsidizing energy bills for energy intensive industry. Now, some food processors and other companies in the food supply chain do qualify for that. But what is infuriating to all of the farming unions is even the energy intensive farmers do not apply for that. Even the ones that are using the most energy, they are just excluded because it's sector by sector. You're either in or you're out. And currently farming is out. So they were really hoping that there would be a broadening in scope of that support as other support packages have fallen away at the recent budget but Chancellor Jeremy Hunt made no mention of it so they've been left asking without an answer.
1: Yeah they've been left with that so so it's fine if you're smelting steel or or, uh, refining aluminium but no good if you're producing food but we'll have to see I suppose we're just gonna have to see what happens and I suppose if those outputs continue to drop then the government may have to think twice about its decision. The role of government surely
0: is to balance long-term risks with what's happening in the short term And you would think at some point they would conclude that, you know, a whole scale contraction in domestic food production is not great when food security is an increasingly global issue and we can't guarantee, even those free market areas can't guarantee that food will just be able to flow in from elsewhere without there being some
4: issues. Offering best-in-class visibility and an industry-leading 4-metre turning radius, the narrowest steep-nose bonnet, and practical features, the Massey Ferguson 5S Series is the ultimate loader tractor. And it's just been crowned Farm Machine 2023 at this year's SEMA Show. Looking for an award-winning, high-performance tractor? Look no further. Visit our website or contact your local MF dealer for more information. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast.
1: All right, listening to the Farmer's Weekly Podcast, a very warm welcome to you wherever you happen to be listening to us from on what is, well, it's going to be Easter. Um, and really importantly, I'm joined this week because Johan's gone on yet another holiday uh, by the esteemed company, Farmer's Weekly's very own editor, Andrew Meredith. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for having me. The rarefied heights of the Farmer's Weekly
0: Podcast, even I don't normally have access here.
1: Well, there you, there you go, you see a special Easter treat. And as well, what is pretty cool as well, Andrew, is this is, I've sort of, I think it must be about now, because thinking back, this is our third birthday episode. I can't believe it's been going for three years, three years of the Farmers Weekly Podcast. It's a bit scary,
0: isn't it? launched in the depths of lockdown and how lovely that that is now
1: 3 years ago. Yeah it was yes we were worried about people i think the first episode we did and um, we had a, a big in depth piece about could you catch covid from the footpaths through your farm such was the fear which is understandable at the time but looking back on it uh, we realized actually there was a lot more going on than just people walking through the farm etc uh, don't forget if you want to get in touch with the podcast you can it is podcast that That's podcast at fwi.co.uk. Please do send us an email. Andrew, this week, the Farmers Weekly magazine, what is going on in it?
0: Two really big themes this week, Hugh. We've got a whole slew of content, an article in every section looking at how you can minimise your energy costs. And that's been kicked off in the news section with that research looking at the fact that many farmers are planning on cutting their food production because of those soaring bills. And then the second big thing to mention is the fact that we are launching our campaign to bring the industry together and help drive up standards in the meat industry, following that excellent story from Abby last week. Uh, that sent ripples throughout uh, Parliament and the nationwide media.
1: Absolutely good stuff. Uh, Also this week uh, in the business section, uh, staying with the energy theme, uh, there is a piece about solar systems and talking about payback in as little as four and a half years at the moment with the feed-in price or or the the export price uh, as high as it is with energy costs where they are. So that, I suppose, is a a potential opportunity uh, as opposed to a barrier to business uh, having such high high energy prices
0: that's right and we've also got a article in the livestock section looking at uh, fencing without the fencing using collars on your cows to regulate where they stay so you're thinking of herds in um, a sort of on n- n- rougher grazing or big hills or on coasts on the coasts where you can't put in normal fencing or electric fencing you can keep them within a defined patch by giving them a little tickle from the collar around their neck
1: instead, a special no fence. You think of Whenever I think of coastal grazing, this is really bad. I always think of the far from the far from the madding crowd and all the poor sheep um, in that scene where they fall off the cliff. And perhaps if they all had no-fence collars on, if they'd had them on, they wouldn't have done that, which would have obviously changed the story hugely. Uh, but they are very good, the old no-fence collars. They work very well. Um, in the arable section, uh, there is a piece about drone spraying uh, and the viability of that and, and, and how that may or it may not develop, uh, depending on, on, on how, I suppose, how it goes in terms of getting it accredited and approved, because presumably it represents a whole other list of people to get worried about risk on i suppose doesn't it andrew
0: well if we've learned anything in the last few years it's pretty hard to get the law to keep up with the pace of
1: technology exactly and this is another example but it's something that's being used loads in other parts of the world uh, and you start to think to yourself well then why can't we use it here but i'm sure someone will come up with a reason why we can't
0: and now the markets,
1: Hugh. What's going on this week? Thank you, Andrew. The finished air deadweight continues to rise yet again. 489.4, up from 488 this week. The live weight also goes up 272.1. Uh, looking at the sheep rings uh, and some growth there as well. Uh, deadweight SQQ for the UK on lamb, 583.1. Uh, the live weight SQQ is 276.8, up from 267.4 last week. Uh, arable markets have, or what have done this week? This week, they've all gone. Back again a bit after they all went on again last week they've all come back again uh, so feed week this week one eighty eight ten back from one hundred and ninety nine pounds billing wheat two four five back from two six one forty these are all called spot prices feed barley one sixty seven sixty that's back from one seven two sixty or cedar ape three eight three fifty uh, that's only back a few quid from three eight five forty uh, but compare that this will, <laughs> this will make you weep into your into your Podcast device. Uh, a year ago, the spot price this week on all seed rape was only eight hundred and one pounds and thirty p, and now it's three hundred and eighty three pounds and fifty p. Feed peas this week two twenty six. That's unchanged. Feed beans are unchanged at two twenty, uh, and a slight reduction in the price of red diesel. An average litre of red diesel as priced on Wednesday morning this week seventy six point one zero pence per litre. Now, uh, thinking back to arable and all that's been going on, uh, one thing that's come out this week from HDB is the UK crop report or crop condition report. And joining me to talk about it now is HDB analyst Anthony Spate. Uh, Anthony, what does this report tell us? It's all looking quite optimistic and positive, dare I
6: say, especially for winter grains. We had fairly uh, swift harvest for 2022. We had a fairly mild autumn which has allowed crops to establish well um, it's been cold and dry in many areas which has reduced early gains but has meant we have had relatively low disease pressure. Temperatures have been variable throughout winter, you know we had the severe frosts occurring in December and January and then when we hit February uh, soils have become um unusually dry, which allowed for some early sowing of uh, spring crops under good conditions and even earlier drilling on heavier land. But obviously since then we've had the cold weather again, which has slowed the emergence of newly sown crops. And as March has, has come about, there's been a, a big delay to drill in, which has stopped field work from all of the rain. And this has also delayed fertilizer and pesticides applications in some regions so April will be a busy time uh, catching up on that drilling but overall winter grains in this report um, still have the potential to deliver um, good yields although it is noted this is providing disease pressure is effectively managed in winter barley I will add that and then for winter oilseed rate conditions are variable um, but there is still potential for good yields where crops have grown away from the cabbage stem flea beetle. So just to put some numbers to this view, so winter wheat um good to excellent ratings as at uh, the end of March is 90% and this is ahead of 81% at the same point last year and then for winter barley um it's at 92% good to excellent and this is up from 80% at the same point last year and there's very, there's a very low amount of crops so for one percent of Winter wheat is in poor to very poor condition and 0% of uh, winter barley is in poor to very poor condition. So that's just to contextualise that um, it's looking quite optimistic for for
1: crops as we approach Harvest 23. That's HDP analyst Anthony Spate. I'm Colin Bowers from Corteva Agricides. Univoc fungicide will offer robust control of septoria and rusts in your cereal crops again this year it contains the unique active ingredient in a trek, which is from a new class of chemistry and has already been proven to deliver higher yields discover more about the benefits of univoc and our latest application advice at corteva.co.uk forward slash univoc
2: the farmer's weekly podcast
1: Now, biodiversity net gain is something we've talked about before on the podcast. It's the principle, if you build something which is on something that's currently habitat, you need to replace that habitat somewhere else or a proportion of it. One thing we haven't talked about, though, is that you will have to deliver biodiversity net gain as a farm business if you seek full planning permission, for example, for a new farm building. Now, Catherine Brown is from Serious Property. Catherine, this is something we've now got to start thinking about within the context of our own farm businesses, isn't it?
4: Yes, so uh, biodiversity net gain is going to be applicable to all planning applications. So unless you're doing something under permitted development, it's more than likely that you're going to have to work out Um, what you're going to do about BNG.
1: So permitted development at the moment isn't affected by it so that carries on as normal so if we do uh, decide we want to build something uh, we're effectively you've got to I suppose the first thing you've got to do is establish what's there whether it's in terms of the habitat that you're going to build on.
4: Yes so um, biodiversity net gain is it's using the habitats as a proxy for what Biodiversity is there. So um, an ecologist will calculate what your baseline habitats are on, on the, the area that you're building. Um, then they put it through the metric, that throws out a number. You have to then be able to deliver that number plus 10%, ideally on your farm, or you can go and buy those those credits on the market.
1: I suppose going forward it's probably useful to start thinking about this planning forward and also to take into account to look at your, your, your whole farm as a, or the farm as a whole because presumably there will be some areas which lend themselves naturally to being BNG areas versus prime bits of cropping ground for example.
4: Well interestingly the, what we keep coming across is people have little bits of their farm which aren't very productive but are actually very biodiverse. The habitats that are there because they haven't been farmed are, are quite good. So it's in a way, it's quite difficult to be able to enhance or create habitats in those areas to be able to to get to create these biodiversity units. So in a way, using the corner of an arable field that's been quite you know farmed productively for a long time, putting that down as a bit of grassland can get you more units than trying to create something very complicated.
1: And the basic numbers are, just run us through the basic requirements. So, if I want to deliver, say, if I've got a 1,000 square metres in my red line of my planning area, what would I have to deliver in terms of BNG? How does it work?
4: So, it has to be a minimum of 10% of the of biodiversity units on top of what was there. So, it could be completely different for every farm. It's going to be, Every farm is going to have a, a unique score because it depends on where you're building it if you're building it on the corner of an arable field you're going to have a different score. to so if you're building it on a bit of permanent pasture it's there's no one size fits all.
1: What's the timeline for this Catherine in terms of, of when people need to start actually doing this?
4: So biodiversity gain is going to kick in from November this year um, but the government have uh, last month they announced there's going to be a small site exemption Um, which will delay those sites till April next year, um, which is just to give the local planning authorities a bit of breathing room, because I don't think they really know how they're going to process all of these applications coming in.
1: And presumably between now and next April, if you get planning permission for your new grain store or cattle shed or whatever, that will stand as long as you start within three years uh, and you won't have to do BNG.
4: Yes, yes, it should do. I, I would push against a local authority that was would make you do it before then because it's not a legal requirement although local authorities in some areas are asking for it it's not it's not legally binding
1: that's Catherine brown from Ceres property
4: so hugh i think a lot of farmers will have
0: heard by now that they might be able to de- uh, benefit from these new rules coming in on biodiversity net gain from other developers projects but what about their own buildings
1: I don't think people have realised that smaller building projects are applicable here as well. It's not just the big housing estates and the big developments and things like that. So you need to start thinking about it in terms of how you deliver that. There are, as you heard in the audio, a few get out of jail cards. So the minimum sizes and also if it's, for example, a permitted development, so permitted agricultural development, for example, you wouldn't need at the moment to do BNG. And is that the case right now or when's this law coming in? BNG for big developments, etc, kicks in in November of this year, so they'll have to start delivering that and it'll be put in as part of their planning permission. For things like farm buildings, they're now talking about not bringing that condition in until and for another 12 months, basically it' will be next April, full planning permission granted on farm buildings will require an element of Bng.
0: But this should be an easy solution for most farmers, right? They're the ones with access to loads of other grounds compared to most developers. So they can just make one bit of the farm a little bit scruffier, or is it
1: more complicated than that? There is no one-size-fits-all solution to this. It depends what you're building, as you heard in the audio, what you're building on. And and then what you're going to deliver to uh, effectively match that in terms of the amount you have to deliver as per whatever the local regulation is, what the local planning authority says. So you will need a, an ecologist. Uh, so that's more cost to effectively see what's there and then tell you what you have to deliver to fit in with that local regulation. Already, it would seem there is a shortage of ecologists out there. They are going to be very busy. Hey, if you want an alternative career, train as ecologists because there's going to be loads of work going forward with this. So there's that going on. The other thing which seems to be a bit of an unknown at the moment, this biodiversity net gain, you're effectively committing to maintain that new newly created habitat for a period of 30 years. Okay. So you let's say you go and create a flower meadow of an acre, um, you will have to put that on your deed so legally it's got to go on the deed so whoever owns the land over the next 30 years will have to continue delivering that flower meadow habitat there will be a protocol it's a bit like basically going into countryside stewardship for 30 years although you haven't got the rpa coming to audit you you've effectively got to set up your own audit system and and prove to the local authority whenever they ask, yep, here's the flower meadow, it's still going strong. Because obviously what they can't have is people saying, yeah, I'll create a flower meadow, they chuck a bit of seed out, walk away and leave it, and within five years no-one's done anything with it and it's just a load of old brambles and rubbish. So what's not abundantly clear is how, particularly at the smaller level, because you know big developers will have big money um, and they'll be able to set things up with, you know I don't know, environmental consultants, wildlife trusts or whoever – But how will that work and what, more importantly, what will it cost for smaller businesses? If you think about it, just the legal framework itself, the contract, just drafting that could come to a few quid time you've paid a solicitor. So that bit is still a bit of an unknown. But the bottom line is, if you are thinking about building a new farm building, Get your skates on because you really could do with getting the planning permission done and dusted in the next 12 months. So, in theory, you escape at the start anyway of having to deliver BNG as a result of that development. Because once we get past next April, all the planning permissions granted will be subject to BNG.
2: The Farmers Weekly Podcast.
1: Now, you may have seen Red Tractor TV ads on your screens in the last couple of weeks as they've just recently relaunched their consumer-facing TV campaign. But just how big an impact does the Farm Assurance mark actually have with consumers? Earlier, I caught up with John Payne. He's worked his whole career as a marketeer within the food sector, both here in the UK and across the globe, he's now retired, and he's an independent director on the Red Tractor board. He told me the cut through that the brand has with consumers is quite remarkable.
7: About four or five years ago, about a third of the population would spontaneously mention Red Tractor. Today, that number's forty eight percent. So, have almost half the population off the top of their head mention your brand is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, I can't give exact numbers away, but you know, the brands that I've worked uh, for in, in recent history, uh, brands like KFC, would be somewhat higher than half, but not that much higher. You know, and so their marketing budget is enormous. It's probably fifty to sixty million pounds a year, um, and through all that investment, you know, they're getting over half the consumers spontaneously aware of the brand. So, Red Tractor, I think, has done a very, very good job of building a very consistent um, image, a very consistent message. And that has really done a good job in terms of sticking in, in people's minds. And why do you think that's
1: happened, John? Because the budget is completely, it's nothing like the size of the big corporates that you've mentioned. It's tiny in comparison. How have they achieved that?
7: Certainly, you know, the, the brand features on packaging, um, on, you know, product everything from dairy, produce, uh, meat. Um, so that logo appearing in store and on packaging is obviously very important. But I guess the interesting thing is that hasn't really changed that much in the last sort of four years or so. So that level of exposure through packaging and through the traditional uh, method really has been consistent. And I think the you know that big change from one in three people to one in two people being aware of the brand that's happened in recent years, and I think we can really see that has correlated to uh the investment in the advertising um as more money has been put into advertising and I think also the way in which that advertising money has been spent uh has been refined and so I do think it is actually down to um you know the success of the marketing campaigns.
1: And when you look at the data and your involvement with Red Tractor today, why do you think consumers do react to it? Why is it important to them?
7: I think there's a what I call a there's a huge interest in, in agriculture. There may not be that much understanding of agriculture. So um, you know what I mean by that is the uh, number of television programs that are on at the moment that are features feature farms clarkson's farms an obvious example consumers are much more aware of farming they may not have a great understanding of it but i think they nowadays do want to understand a bit more about where their food comes from
1: how powerful a differentiator do you think it is of goods on shelves you know i'm thinking particularly products that don't have a mark on or might have might be an imported product with their mark on it
7: yeah it's interesting because a couple of years ago said to the marketing team you know do we know what difference the logo makes you know we've um in my uh, career you know we're often doing things like product improvements so you'll show customers you know the uh the the the, the, the potato crisps with uh, cooked a certain way and then the new improved flavoring and you do a side-by-side uh, test um and that's a very kind of common way of improving products. So have that we've done, ever done side-by-side testing with consumers, packaging um, with the red tractor logo and without, um, and similarly in uh, food service menus or menu boards with that red tractor logo and without. And the results were phenomenal. I mean, we were seeing around about 8 to 10% uh, improvement in how customers rated the quality of the food from a supermarket, whether it was in dairy or meat or produce, and similarly in uh, restaurants or in fast food, uh, similar improvements in the quality perceptions. So this was literally a side-by-side comparison and gave us some very good insight into the impact that Red Tractor can make on people's perception of products.
0: So, Hugh, what have we learn about the impact of Red Tractor this week, then?
1: I think the big thing is, love it or hate it, the impact that it has as a brand is really high considering how little is spent on it, which I know not everyone loves the Red Tractor, but what this tells you is there is such an opportunity if you get the farm thing right, if you get the food chain thing right, if you get the education piece right, consumers... Are actually comforted by the fact that stuff is done well etc etc and therefore they identify with it i can feel listeners shouting at their bluetooth speakers now well if that's the
0: case why on earth isn't there a bigger premium for being red track to certify why isn't there a 10 20 30 percent increase on the cost of or the, the price of their outputs
1: if you had a 30 percent increase in farm gate prices uh, because of accreditation i 'm afraid you probably wouldn 't sell much through that chain you 'd sell some to some discerning affluent people, uh, but not to the mass market look what 's happening in the dairy and the liquid milk market at the moment. One of the reasons there are many, but one of the reasons that the liquid milk market has contracted is people are buying less they are being more frugal. The reason they 're being more frugal is because the price has gone up, so the market can only take so much so don 't look at the red tractor as oh, it'll add value to the product. Well, it does add value to the product, but indirectly it adds value because it gives you a sort of one-stop assurance uh, place. That's at a really affordable price. When you look, and we've said it before on the podcast, Andrew, if you look at what other sectors pay for accreditation within their supply chain, it is ridiculously more than the hundreds, and it just goes into thousands for some producers, pay for red tractor. Uh, And that's how it should be looked upon. If you don't like it, fine, don't take part it but it will limit your access to market rightly or wrongly
0: well it's interesting to see this research and hopefully you know this is one of the criticisms of red tractor that i have is perhaps they aren't as good as they need to be in communicating to farmers the value we know that the supermarkets really value what they do we know that we now know what that the consumers really value what they do Uh, It's time that they focus on making sure that the farmers are aware of that because they do have a job to rehabilitate their reputation with some segments of farmers rightly or wrongly. And maybe that's just because they've been a little bit absent in communicating the value that they do have.
1: Look, you could criticise them for not communicating enough within the farming space, but look, they've always sent circulars out. There's been emails, there's been interaction with some of the farming organisations. Some of the communication between farming organisations and the TACs, the Technical Advisory Committees in each sector, probably isn't as dynamic or as forward-thinking or as robust as it needs to be. There needs to be more leadership there better off investing like i think like they have done in communicating externally and telling people about it the information is there if producers want to look at it so they're just if they're sitting around whinging they're not told enough then they just need to look a bit harder that's just my opinion but i think your money is better spent pushing it to the wider market and using that resource wisely to tell people how good a product it is and what the standard means externally
0: we've been learning a lot in the last weeks about how auditing works in the rest of the food supply chain uh, and i don't want to revisit all of that now but i would just mention the fact that you know these meat processing firms they are individually audited by every single retailer separately as well as some overarching uh, audit trails so i I do give some credence to this argument that were Red tractor not to exist, it does not necessarily follow that the paperwork will get less. It could even get more.
1: It does help to simplify things by having, if you will, one standard, although there isn't one standard because there is actually diversity in that market. You could argue it's the it's the basis for all standards. Dairy is a good example, isn't it, of where the supply chain has effectively said, well, actually, we want to do red tractor and we want to do more. And certain markets within dairy because of the supply chain, because of consumers have sort of bolted bits on. And we see it in other, you know, you see it in some arable supply chains as well, where there are bolt-ons. So it does help to simplify things. There reality is that going forward accreditation is going to become more and more important and I'm thinking particularly from the environmental perspective so when every business which if we're going to hit net zero will have to account for all of its carbon whether you're a plumber an architect a farmer or whatever accreditation is going to be absolutely key so Get used to it, because I don't think it's going to go anywhere fast. And actually, if you're already doing it and if you're already used to it, then that's probably an advantage going forward. So, uh, Andrew, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you for taking time out to um, step into Johan's currently on holiday shoes um it's been good and great having you along for for what's the uh, third anniversary edition the
0: podcast has been one of the success stories of farmers weekly in recent years and long may it continue i'm really pleased that we are able to bring the news to people wherever they are now not just around the kitchen table but online in the tractor cab in the car we have got to keep doing that and we've got to keep innovating and it's a it's a brilliant product and, and
1: thanks to you and johan for all your hard work on it thank you very much uh, and, and thank you, everyone, for listening and everyone for taking part. And as well as and, and the other great dynamic about the podcast of course is it's not just people within the UK we know because we get loads of correspondence from you all over the world it's people listening to this all over the rest of the world as well which is is so good as well and particularly when you get those other points of view uh, and other perspectives that come to us uh, via the power of email Uh, next week's podcast it'll be me and Johan Uh, not sure what we're going to be doing next week but I'm sure it's going to be equally equally as brilliant as we step into what effectively will be the start of the fourth year of the podcast if you want to get in touch you can of course it's podcast at fwi.co.uk that's podcast at fwi.co.uk but in the meantime this has been the Farmer's Weekly Podcast for three years now I'm Hugh Broome. until next week goodbye and
0: I'm Andrew Meredith
1: goodbye